0: Well, good morning, everybody. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Stephen Atherton, one of the pastors here at the church, excited to continue on in this series in Luke. If you haven't been able to listen to the first couple sermons, highly encourage you to do it. Chad started off the series, did last week's sermon as well. It'll help give you more context into what we're doing and what we're walking through in this series. Now, if any of you use the newsletter, which I hope all of you use the newsletter, every week... Kelly goes on there and writes out the title of the sermon that we're going to be preaching. Last week, Chad told you that he changed the title of his sermon. Well, I did the same thing, except for yesterday, I rewrote the entire sermon. So, bear with me on it, but instead of it being called, What Should I Do?, the title is now just simply the Upside Down Proclamation. The Upside Down Proclamation. So in ancient times, there was an extra special role that was assigned to individuals trusted by the king. Anytime a king would travel or go anywhere, he would send out this trusted servant out in front of him. And his job was proclaiming. His job was to proclaim that this king was coming to a new place. And this was a really important role because it gave the people time to prepare for this king that was coming. It gave them time to figure out what needed to be done from this proclamation. The people were able to to get gifts if they were wanting to present the king with any gifts when he arrived. They could go and make sure they dusted up their banquet hall, get it ready for a feast if that's something the king might want. And most importantly, the one sent out to share this news was tasked with preparing the way. He would go through the path prior to the king, and he would make it straight. He would remove any obstacles that might be in the way. He would be smoothing out the rough places in every way, trying to make the road as perfect as possible for this king's rival. And when a king arrived anywhere, there was an expectation. It was this universal expectation that there needed to be extravagance, that it needed to be big and beautiful, because you have this man riding in on a giant horse. You have a caravan in front of him and behind him. You have a man that's, that's above everyone. This guy that's untouchable. That any regular people couldn't imagine addressing. Someone that's way too important to ever care about those peasants that are so far beneath him. These kings were served and catered to. They didn't serve. These kings took what they want, they ruled where they wanted, they did what they wanted. This was what the people thought when they heard this proclaimer coming and giving the news that royalty was on the way. There was a very clear image that was seared into their minds that culture had dictated from the very beginning of monarchy. Even though we're not in the ancient Middle East, I think it's easy for us to fall into that same perspective like the people might have at that time. When we hear a proclamation of someone in power coming, we can immediately get a visual of what we expect is going to happen. I remember the countless times when I was in the military, and we'd be sitting out in the middle of a cornfield, hanging out, doing our thing, and over the radio in the Humvee, we would hear hey, everybody, the commander's coming out to the field, and we would immediately freak out. We're like, oh, no, not the commander. Like, I would get this pit in my stomach, because it's like, okay, we got to get everything ready. We got to prepare. I got to clean my pants off. I've been sitting in a cornfield. I look like trash. Okay, we got to quiz each other, make sure we know everything is happening. It was just like this intense feeling of like, oh, my gosh, the commander's coming out. Oh, guys, what are we gonna do? And nine times out of ten, he would hammer us as hard as he could, and then we remembered why it was we were so scared about the commander coming out to the field. <laughs> so it makes me wonder where your mind goes. Where's your mind go when you're thinking about this? Because I bet you, like me, and those people back in the day, they have a lens on that dictates how you feel about those untouchables. Those untouchables that when you hear the proclamation that they're coming, you don't know what to think or you don't know how to act. You don't know what to do. So as we dig into our passage in Luke today, we're going to see a proclaimer come onto the scene. A proclaimer that was out, sent out to make the way straight. But not just any proclaimer. This was the one that was proclaiming the ultimate king. This is the king that was prophesied about for thousands of years, this proclaimer that, like I said, begins preparing the way for the one who would come, but preparing it in the most upside down way possible. This proclaimer that made them then and us today take a step back and think through the lenses that we have on and how we see this one true king. This king who is bringing a brand new upside-down beginning. An upside-down kingdom that changes everything. Seeing the way prepared by an upside-down proclaimer and place. With an upside-down message and mode. Seeing an upside-down life and an upside-down king. This is our roadmap for today of what we are going to see as we walk through this passage. An upside-down proclaimer in place. Upside-down message and mode. Upside-down life pointing to this upside-down king. Helping us to see at the end how the people then were called to see differently. And reminding us of how we're supposed to see differently. Let's pray. Lord God, um, as we... Get ready to dive into your word. I pray, God, that you would just open our hearts and our minds and our eyes to see you clearly. God, that we would truly process the way we see you. Jesus, that we would truly process who it is that you are. I pray that you would use this time for your honor and your glory and that we would leave here today more on fire for you. God, we love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you haven't yet, open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 3, starting in verse 1. I forget what page number it is that Sarah shared with you, but it's 800 and something something. So 858, fifty-eight. Eight hundred fifty-eight. that's the number. It starts off saying this. In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor over Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Uteria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Well, thank you, Luke. So, from Chad's sermon in verse one, we saw Luke explaining the reason. For this book, and in that he specifically says that he wants to put together an orderly account. And he does that here pretty well. Luke continues this pattern, establishing that the account he's providing is genuine history. This isn't just a story that Paul or that Luke was telling. He wants to point out in every way possible: look, I'm giving you proof. Here's history: boom, 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 and this is what happened when. Tying it all together with these historical facts. And in this first section, showing the contrast of these powerful Roman people that were in charge, but immediately transitioning to the word of the Lord, coming to a man in the middle of the desert. All connecting back to the prophecies of the forerunner in the Old Testament. And I think it's important that before we process this ministry of John the Baptist and Jesus' baptism, that we actually walked through this detailed history of Roman leadership and high priest in power at the time, because it'll show us how it directly connects with this introduction to John and Jesus' ministry. Again, the first sentence in verse 1 being, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. So when the Roman Senate declared Augustus Caesar emperor, they set it up, so that his power would end with his death. And this wasn't typical back at that time. Normally, the emperors would be passing off their power to their heirs. The idea would be that the ones to choose the new emperor would be the senate and not the emperor himself. Now, just like any human with large amounts of power, Augustus didn't necessarily like the idea of some random guy coming in to be emperor. So he decided to take in his own hands and appoint a co-regent. This was like a... Co-king, kind of, but just lower in power. And then slowly but surely, he would take over the throne, so the saint couldn't choose. And Augustus selected his son-in-law, Tiberius, who he adopted in 4 AD so that he could still pass the throne through his line. He's a sneaky guy. He's like, I'm just going to adopt this guy over here, and then he can still pass on my line. So Tiberius became co regent in AD 11 and became full emperor on August 19th, AD 14, putting the 15th year of his reign from the time of being co-regent between 25 and 29 AD, which is the time that this account of John the Baptist took place. It's a pretty cool history. The history is important because we see so many things falling into place by God's providence through this decision Augustus made to give Tiberius power. Verse 1 continues, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, Herod being Tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, Tetrarch of the region of Uteria, and Tracontus, and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene. (sighs) I've said these words so many times. I don't know if I'm saying them right, so I'm sorry if I'm not saying them right. In Tiberius' term, he put Pontius Pilate in charge of Judea. And if you didn't know, this is the guy who would be washing his hands of Jesus, sending him to the cross, releasing Barabbas. And then Tiberius, he gave power to these Tetrarchs. These weren't men that were worthy to be kings, but they still had power. And they were in control of the entirety of the region of Jesus' ministry during that time. And then you have the high priest, and Caiaphas, that Jesus would be presented to after his arrest. Each person playing out a role in history in the most important story ever told. So what Luke is bringing to play here isn't just a list of historical facts. It's things that all tie together to this incredible story. With that, the passage continues. And it moves the scene from this high Roman leadership to a lowly John. You have this son of Zechariah, the one crying out in the wilderness of the Messiah who would come to save. It says this. The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness, and he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as is written in the book of the word of Isaiah the prophet, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. So the word of the Lord came to John. And this actually designated him as a prophet. And this was a big deal because prophets publicly proclaiming hadn't been on the scene since Malachi. And not just that, Luke is noting here that John's in the wilderness. This upside-down proclaimer, the forerunner of Jesus, was a hermit in the middle of the desert. And this is the guy. This is the guy with the special role of proclaiming the coming king. And in this, we see with the wilderness and we see who he is and where he's at, this is actually the beginning of the fulfillment of these Old Testament prophecies that we see in Isaiah, uh, we see in Malachi 3.1, we see in Malachi 4.5, all over the place, we have these prophecies that are starting to be fulfilled through John the Baptist in the middle of nowhere. And from this word brought to John, we see a complete upside-down kind of message. Continuing with the upside-down place that they were at. So you have this upside-down proclaimer in an upside-down place. The people knew the history of crossing the Jordan to enter into the Promised Land. This was massively symbolic for their place as chosen people of God. And now you have this guy fulfilling the Old Testament by preparing the way for the Lord, not only proclaiming a baptism of repentance, that we're going to talk about here in a second, but was proclaiming this baptism in the Jordan, it says that he was baptizing in the region of the Jordan River. He was baptizing in the Jordan River. This is symbolism that would have struck these people immensely. These locations at that time that were really important. So the symbolism wouldn't be lost in them, that this is actually re-entering the Jordan River. Instituting an entirely different thought process of who they were as people seeing that it's not land that defines you or water that defines you, but something else. It's someone else. The one the proclaimer was pointing to in the wilderness, this path being made straight for the coming king, brought the people back to where it started. With John continuing this with an upside-down message. So for the last 400 years between Malachi and John, there was a silence between God and man. In this, it's pretty fair to assume that the people's perspective of God had become skewed. All throughout the Old Testament, we see the Israelites in the same pattern. We're sorry, God, fall back into it. They lose sight of the truth. We went through the book of Malachi recently, and that was the entirety of the book. Pointing out to the people, hey, you have failed and fallen in this way, and this way, and this way. And I, the Lord, want to recorrect that path. So we can pretty well assume that their perspective of God had been skewed again. Like we saw in Malachi, a relationship that becomes stagnant, that's potentially what was happening here. They needed to be reminded of truth. They've heard the proclamation of the coming king, but they need to be a people prepared. They needed to see the truth of the king that was coming. And this message that was proclaimed to them is not one that they expected. Preparing this for this coming king wasn't about getting presents ready like they would have thought. It wasn't about impressing him. It wasn't about preparing a feast. It was about preparing their hearts for the beginning of this upside-down kingdom being instituted by the one who is coming to institute it. In proclaiming the Messiah's coming, John was proclaiming a baptism of repentance preparing the people's hearts for the message that Jesus was about to bring them. This repentance was pointing the people back to the truth of honoring God with their lives. By turning from their sin, turning to God and living their lives reflecting this. This is also a call that we have daily. Remembering the salvation that we've been given through the Savior that came turning from our sin, turning to God. This is what John was testifying to. Another aspect to this upside-down kingdom was the mode. The mode these people were being reminded of in this repentance. And that mode was baptism. It was repentance in baptism. This baptism was a lot different than the the way that we see it nowadays because baptism at, at that time was actually a sign for Gentiles leaving their old ways, coming into the Jewish faith. This was a rite of purification for Gentiles. So this baptism John preached wasn't just a dunk and go. This had deep meaning to the people with these Jews being baptized, actually aligning with Gentiles. It's a reminder, Gentiles are anyone that weren't the Jewish people, so them aligning with that is a big deal. This was a baptism calling the people to renounce their old ways of living and was preparing their hearts for the coming Messiah, fulfilling even more of the Old Testament prophecy Verse 6, just going back to that real quick, says, And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. All flesh shall see the salvation. Not just Jews, it was Gentiles too. This was an upside-down proclaimer in an upside-down place with an upside-down message and mode. Moving us into verse 7 through 9, it says this. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. You brood of vipers. In other words, he's saying, you venomous snakes, you vile people. They were coming out to be baptized out of fear of wrath. Not because they wanted to understand the truth of what this baptism represented. Not because they wanted to understand, that to, to change their lives and to focus back on what God had said for them to do. And John makes it clear how wrong their thought process is calling them to bear fruit within this repentance. The Jews that were getting baptized out of fear of wrath still had a mindset that since they're the extra special chosen ones, they're good to go. Knowing their thought process, John doesn't even give them an opportunity to think it. He shuts them down immediately when it comes to them being the children of Abraham. John's saying, this has not one single thing to do with Abraham. This is a massive concept that would have just shocked the people. What do you mean? We're, we're the chosen people, John. I don't know what you're talking about. But John's pointing to the fact that it's not about heritage. It's not about bloodline. That's not what the king was, that, that's not what the king was coming. That's not what this way was being prepared for. That's what, not what these smoothing out of these rough surfaces was for. Think about this culture shock. so, So you're telling us that everything that's defined us and made us a special people up to this point, it doesn't matter? That bloodlines don't matter to this coming king? That in this upside-down message that we're, we're supposed to go back and renounce these old lives, we've been waiting all this time for a king, and this is what he wants? The opposite of everything that we've ever known? And not just that, we're not extra special anymore? And, and you want us to align with Gentiles in this baptism? Jesus, this king that John was preparing the way for, was bringing a complete 180 degree shift from what the people knew. For them, it was following the law laid out and there was deep pride in the heritage of being a chosen people from the line of Abraham. But now they're being told it's not about any of that. And then he says, "And if there's not an understanding of these truths being presented, if there's no fruit on the trees from the acknowledgement of repentance for sins, they would be cut off and burned in the fire. The axe is laid to the tree. Anyone who doesn't repent, doesn't believe, and doesn't produce fruit, they're going to be burned up. They're going to be lost. This message for them was preparing their hearts for the truth Of the gospel, the truth that they already knew, they just didn't know the end game to. They knew the Savior was coming. They understood that sacrifices for sins were important, but they didn't fully understand because they didn't have the full picture yet. But we do. We do have the full picture, we know the whole story. We know who was being proclaimed to. We know what he came to do, and he did. But do we truly know the upside-down king, the one who came to this place, lived the perfect life, died on the cross, rose again, defeating death and the grave, giving us life if we put our faith and trust in him? Knowing Romans eight one, there is no condemnation in Christ. This is the picture of the king that I pray that we see today. The one they were being prepared for and, and, and with all of this heavy information that had to just be throwing them for a crazy loop, they ask a really good question. So John, if this is the case, if it's not about heritage, if it's not about any of those things we, we feel like we've known, then what are we supposed to do? What should I do? John immediately giving three great examples that bring an upside-down life to light. And the crowds asked him, verse 10, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? He said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations and be content with your wages. John's telling them, give freely to those who are in need. If you have an extra shirt, give it to someone that needs it. We see all throughout scripture, it, it's not just these things, it's, it's any way that we can serve someone that's in need. The list goes on. Tax collectors, tax collectors, Don't collect more than you're authorized to do. Soldiers, don't extort money by threats. Each of these renouncing their old ways of life by living counter-culturally, preparing for the coming Messiah. With each of these three points, John is bringing to the surface that in our humanity, in our flesh, we tend to do the opposite. I work hard for my food and my clothes. That guy should just get a job, right? It's not my concern, this has been me so many different times. I'm driving down the road, hitting I-25, and you see that one young guy standing on the side of the road with this sign. I need food. I need clothes. I'm like, man, come on. You're 25. Go get a job. Really? But that's not what was being called to. It's a countercultural flip. It doesn't matter who he is that's, that's asking. Give. Give it to him. It's countercultural. This is flipping the script. the upside down of normal human thinking give freely to those who need it. Living like the the coming Messiah then and our wonderful Savior that we know now, by living upside down. The next people to ask the question, what should I do, were the tax collectors. And at that time, tax collectors were hated because it was a very well-known fact that they would take some off the top while they were collecting taxes. Thinking to themselves, yeah, well, I work hard, right? I might as well take a little bit extra. And again, from the word of the Lord, John throws out a script flip that it would be upside down and countercultural for a tax collector to honestly collect taxes. But that's what Jesus' upside down kingdom looks like. What a culture shock. When someone truly desires to honor the Lord with their life, it looks different. People see a different. It was preparing them then with this upside-down message of an upside-down life. And reminding us today to live out this upside-down message. And then came the soldiers. These were, this was the third question that was asked. Same question. What should I do? And it's important to note that these soldiers that were asking John, they would have been Romans. It would have been the Roman soldiers that were out there trying to figure out what was going on. And it was completely common for soldiers to get money from people with threats of pain or jail, especially these Gentile Roman soldiers that were under the authority of the Roman leaders that we listed earlier. These were the men wanting to know what needs to be different. With John saying, don't do those things anymore. Don't look like the rest of the world. Stand out from the other soldiers. Live the upside-down life. So, so far we've seen an upside-down proclaimer and place, an upside-down message and mode, an upside-down life, taking us to the one who is being prepared for, the upside-down king. Verse 15. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So from everything John told them, Conversations were starting to pop up that maybe this John guy that's talking to us, maybe he's the Christ. Maybe he's the Savior. But John shuts it down immediately. Directly pointing to the one who would do all of this. The one that he was preparing the way for. The one has come whose sandal he's unworthy to to untie. Who's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. With this baptism of the Holy Spirit happening at Pentecost that we're going to see later on in the book. And this fire being referenced is either the fire over the heads of the disciples at Pentecost. Or this is actually referencing Jesus' second coming of the wrath that's going to come. Reminding them again of the wrath to come for those who don't repent. So a winnowing fork was basically just a pitchfork that would be used to separate the wheat from the chaff, and the chaff was the bad remains of the wheat. So representing the wheat as those who are his, and the chaff that's burned up those who have not, that, those who are not. And I honestly think this probably had to be the most confusing aspect for them so far, Go back to the beginning when we were talking about the king being proclaimed to and what he would have looked like in their minds. They're like, hold on, John, hold on. So you've been talking about all these things, these different things he's instituting, he's bringing in that are upside down and that, you know, he's going to be this way and this way. But, but sounds to me like he, he looks like one of those kings that, that we were thinking he was going to look like. To them, at that time, again, the king would have been untouchable. And so when they hear, oh, man, you're not even worthy to, to untie the strap of his sandal? He's not just going to baptize it. He's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire? Oh, and talk about warrior. He, he's going to burn everyone up that's not his? And the best part is that all of these things are true. But the craziest thing is that instead of burning them up, instead of just burning us up, he came to be with us. Yes, that day will come, because he is king over all. He is worthy of all. But as he comes to the scene, it's different. Instead of letting us, instead of refusing to let us touch him, Says later on in the book that he actually removes his disciples' sandals and washes their feet. Instead of going to battle on a horse with a sword, he goes to battle for our souls by laying it all down for us. Instead of removing himself from us, he aligns himself with us, like we're gonna see in a couple of verses. This upside down king instituting the upside-down kingdom. Continuing on verse 18, saying this. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod, the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Something to note about Luke's writing here is that he's not going chronologically in order with John's story. Instead, he's actually going topically to tie up this specific story with us as the reader just needing to be aware that John was imprisoned actually a lot later in Jesus' ministry, but Luke is just trying to tie up the ends of this specific story. This ends the account of the forerunner of Jesus in the book. But before it ends, we see John doing something that none of the other Old Testament prophets did, and that is he's preaching the gospel, this good news of Jesus that he's come. The Savior has come. But Luke in his incredible writing fashion, he doesn't just drop the story there like, okay, here's the story arc of John, done. No, he immediately transitions it back to the conversation about this upside-down king. Verse 21. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. So, this Messiah, Jesus, that has come, does something that no one would expect. Jesus is baptized by John, not only beginning his ministry, but also clearly aligning himself with humanity, aligning himself with Gentiles, like we saw symbolically in baptism. From an upside down proclaimer in place, an upside down message and mode, upside down life upside down king, we now get to see an upside down perspective that forced them then to remove their lenses and see this Messiah that has come differently. And for us today, this morning, it should help us to see this king more clearly. Jesus could have in every way come down and live out the life of the stereotypical king. He's God. He can do whatever he wants. But instead he came down and radically changed the system for us. Giving us a clear picture of who this God is that created us. One who came as a lowly servant, lived a lowly, selfish life, and died a lowly death. All for you and I. This upside down king who came and changed it all. And then after being baptized, something happened. An event took place that not only solidifies Jesus as God, but reveals the entirety of the trinity. Because it says that Jesus the Son got baptized, then God the Father spoke, saying, This is my Son, whom I am well pleased. And then the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove. The full Trinity, three in one, showing Jesus as fully man and fully God, aligning with us as people, being fully man to accomplish what needed to happen at the cross, but still getting this incredible visual of the Trinity and Jesus as God. The people had to readjust their lens to see the Messiah for who he is, who he was. We need to look through our lens and see if we see Jesus for who he really is. Do we see him as the one who flipped it all for us? Or, do we still feel like the unt- or does he still feel like the untouchable faraway king to you? Do you see him as one that is closer to you than a brother? Or does it feel like you're the peasant that's so lowly that you can't even look at him? The way you see Jesus, the one John was preparing the way for, the one who came to serve and save, it's It's important because the way we see him affects the way that we live. Live your life knowing that he's given you freedom if you've put your faith and trust in him. Again, Romans 8, 1, there's no condemnation in Christ. He is the upside-down king that desires that you draw near to him daily. Because yes, like we saw, he is worthy of all honor and praise. He is worthy of no one touching that sandal on his foot, but he still wants us to come near Daily. He still wants to hold us close. He's calling us close to him when we fall and fail. Not only can we approach him even in our brokenness and sin and messed up lives, he wants us even more to come closer. When I was talking about a normal king at the beginning, I said, he's a man above everyone. Well, Jesus came... was the lowest for our sake. He was a man that was untouchable. A king would have been. But Jesus is more near than anyone. Regular people couldn't even imagine addressing him. He wants everyone to come to him. Kings are served and catered to. They don't serve. He's the ultimate servant. Kings take what they want. He gave it all up. Kings rule where they want. He is overall in all, and through all, and still wants us. This is the upside-down king. An upside-down proclaimer in place. An upside-down message in mode. An upside-down life with our incredible upside-down king. Let's pray. God, again, you are so good. You are great. You are greatly to be praised. Thank you for your word. Thank you for being able to see this Uh, accounts laid out for us of John the Baptist, the one that was prophesied about the forerunner. Thank you for letting us see the truth of, of your coming, of what you came to do and what you did for us. And I pray as we leave here today, you would help us to truly desire to know how it is we see you, knowing that even in our sin and failing, that yes, you are the king, but you want us to come near. That in our sin, we should desire to come and turn to you. In our brokenness, turn to you. In the good, the bad, the highs, the lows. God, that you are the one that wants to be near to us. You changed it all so that we could be back in a relationship with you. And we love you and praise you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.